Welcome, everyone, to the iAdvanced Senior Care Podcast or the IAS Podcast Series. Uh, we've got another great installment here today. Uh, joining me today is Rachel Provo, um, and she's the Chief Nursing Officer uh, with Bayfront Health Spring Hill. Um, and Rachel, I, I always like to start by, you know, sort of asking folks to give us a brief rundown of your organization, because I feel like uh, uh, in our world of long-term care and, and acute care, sometimes there's a lot of different organization types, so it always helps to kind of hear that first and foremost from the folk, uh, the person we're, we're interviewing. So uh, welcome to the podcast, and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Bayfront Health. Thank you. Um, this is, we're really a community-based facility here in Spring Hill, Florida. Well, where is Spring Hill, Florida? Everybody knows where Weeki Wachi is, where the mermaids are. Well, we're right there. So we're <laughs> there and available for all the folks around as well as the mermaids if they need health care. Um, we're the traditional type hospital where we take care of you from birth until all the way to the end or transition that happens. So we offer full service care. We have, do use our larger facilities down in Tampa and Ocala if we have patients that need that additional level of care. And um, we see probably about 35,000 patients in our emergency room every day. Um, I'm sorry, every year. Edit that, every year. And um, we um, see a lot of patients, um, inpatients as well, and we do probably 1,500 deliveries a year and we have a level two NICU so that we can keep our tiniest little patients in the county with us otherwise they have to go all the way down to Tampa which is 50 miles away. That's an overview of what we do here. I love it. I love it. And, and Rachel, your, your organization is a little bit different uh, than, than our typical organization we interview uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, lots, lots of our constituents are, are skilled nursing uh, assisted living organizations. But, but you know what? Those skilled nursing assisted living organizations, it, it's really critical to understand um, nursing leadership um, sort of across the board. And, and, and that's sort of your expertise. Uh, and, and we, we talked sort of in preparation to this interview, you know, that, that's going to be kind of the basis of our, our, of our conversation here today is to kind of understand the sweeping changes in nursing leadership, just, just what, uh, what that looks like in the context of policy and all of that. Um, so, so, Rachel, I'll just start, you know, in, in the wake of the Affordable Care Act and then sweeping changes to regula- uh, regulations nationally and at the state level, how, is, how have you seen nursing leadership evolve with these times? Well, we all know that the uh, ACA started in 2010, and it's the biggest changes which we've had in healthcare since 1965 when we had Medicare and Medicaid programs. So there wasn't a lot of thinking about things; nothing changed. And then, then since 2010, it's been like a constant, total rework. Everything has changed. And then, currently, looking right now, um, in this past year. Um, we've had four different um, attempts to modify the Affordable Health Care Act into something different uh, based on, you know, current values in the country and thoughts, processes in our um, um, different um, parts of our leadership. And so it really takes a lot to be able to keep up with this. It changes from day to day. So we, uh, as a nurse leader, I rely on my uh, professional organizations like the American Nurses Association, the American Organization of Nurse Executives, um, they have legislature updates that they publish. They get things out like we all do. It's almost like seeing a Facebook post. It keeps you, you know, engages people so that they'll know what's going on because it shifts from, from day to day. And at the state level, it's, a, it's rapidly changing as well. What might be going on where I'm at here in Florida might 
might be totally different than something going on in a different state, especially with our Medicaid population because it's state funded and that does make a big difference in what the rules are in each um, state. So what are you seeing in Florida, Rachel? Um, well, obviously everybody knows if you, if you are um, older or you like the sun, come on down. <laughs> great place. We don't have any state taxes down here. So our Medicare, Medicaid population is probably disproportionate. Um, and the state legislature reacts to that appropriately. Um, there um, is a trend to support senior citizens and in giving them the services they need, but uh, state budgets, especially with no taxation in the state level um, currently, like sales tax, um, are a burden, every state is, to be able to, how can you do more with less? So we're seeing shifting um, legislature that basically talks about well, if we are going to support our senior citizens, who can't we support? So they're looking at more and more modifications, unfortunately, in child services. Um, that's what we're seeing in Florida. So we're supporting our senior citizens, but we're taking away services from our children, our special needs children. And that's, that's sad, very sad. Yeah, yeah. I was I, I was going to say, too, you know, it, your, your point on senior citizens is well-received as well. It, you know, you, you, guys, uh, you guys are kind of in a unique situation uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of those transitions of care that you see, you know, just in the wake of the Affordable Care Act, how sort of those transitions of care from skilled nursing and assisted living. Can you talk a little bit about how your nurses sort of interact in, in, those, in those instances and, and, and how seniors sort of flow through, through Bay, uh, Bayfront? Well, that's a great question because we certainly don't want our senior citizens to be displaced from their current living situation. Um, any more long than possible. They have to have an acute event that they need our level of care. So in Florida, fortunately, they have a very good setup where there's certain um, forms that have to be filled out, transfer forms, and they're different based on the level of care. If it's an a, um, a ALF or if it's a, a skilled services or if it's long-term care, there's different forms that are filled out and they're very standard. So you know the information that you're gonna get is current medications, current, you know, challenges, psychosocial, the whole sort of package sure. so that we can understand for that um, um, senior citizen that comes with it, maybe it's not at the point where they can um, articulate for themselves what their needs are, we can continue the plan of care. And then we work through that pretty much from the same day once the patient is, the acute event is identified, our case management team start working with the facilities that they came from because we believe in Communication is really important, letting the um, facility know what um, level of care they're going to require if they return back because if something has drastically changed, then there may have to be an alternate um, choice for um, care um, based on what the different facilities can provide. So we have standardized forms, phone calls. Actually, we do a lot of our case managers and our director of our med surge unit goes out and actually visits all of the different facilities in the area, and we probably have... 10 or 15 within a 15 mile radius, believe it or not, between wow. the gamut of, of ALS all the way up to our long term care facilities that we um, use us as a hospital. And, th and, and that that's tremendous. I feel like communication above all else is is most critical in getting in, in making sure a, a, a patient gets their their, their meds, their medical record, everything transitions over properly, and that there's a seamless transition back, of course, 
uh, with, uh, with respect to medication management, uh, a specific care plan, rehab, all of those components. Because I imagine you see a lot of patients that have experienced a fall or another sort of, sort of acute injury as it would relate to, to your senior citizens, no? That's correct, we do. Yeah. One of the other things we do is we have a lot of our um, facilities that have chose to come to our hospital with, we have a hospitalist program here. So basically what we do is the hospitalists will see the patients. They don't take care of the patients outside the facility, so they go back to the same position and set up in the hospital, the different facilities they were in. But they see about them while they're in the hospital, and their responsibility is to make sure that this facility gets, within 24 hours after discharge, the update of the plan of care, the medical plan, course of action, so that they have the most up-to-date records. And that's been one of our big, big advantage points. We instituted that about two years ago, that they have the most up-to-date information for their file. Today's episode of the IAS podcast series is brought to you by Omnicare. Say hello to dedicated pharmacy care from Omnicare. Every member of their team makes it their priority to bring you the heartfelt service you deserve with the cost savings and pharmacy solutions you need so you can focus on quality care for your residents. Get to know them at Omnicare.com. Again, that's Omnicare.com. Now back to our interview with Rachel Provo. Um, You know, I want to shift gears a little bit here, uh, Rachel, and talk about staffing. Uh, you know, that's that's one of your passions that you had mentioned. Uh, are, are there certain qualities that you usually recommend? Nursing sort of a, a, a universal uh, profession. You know, if you're in long-term care, if you're in acute care, um, uh, nurses sort of stick together, at least in my, in my experience. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, I, I think you have a lot to offer in this area. You know, are there certain qualities that you look for when you're hiring new team members? Is there an educational background, credentialing? Can you talk about your, what you look for when you're hiring new nurses? Sure. Um, I've been here at this organization for about two years, and um, what I found when I got here, it, we had the warm body syndrome. You don't know what that is. If you're a warm body body and you have a nursing license, come on down. We'll put you to work. (laughs) You all know that that's not necessarily what you need. Each team is unique. Each nursing department is unique. They have special needs. They have requirements. And they all have different cultures. Um, And so you have to be aware of that. Some of the first things that I did was stabilize our nursing leadership. There wasn't any here. It was this massive overturn because there was this massive overturn of because of the warm body syndrome. So we have nursing directors that have been here for the, for the past two years. Right. They all have the same vision, and we have set up profiles for what we expect. So a good example is a profile. Is each department has allowed a standardization of the expectation for their candidates, as well as the current staff. It's not just the people we're bringing in, the current staff as well. Um, there's minimal work experiences and certifications before they even are profiled by HR um, and sent to the director. So we do a lot of that, you know, getting the right group to be considered to start out with. We also require a peer interview and a face-to-face interview. We do a pre-screen with HR. The nursing director does a, um, a interview, and if they feel like that there's enough warrant for it, they do a peer-to-peer. So another team member, another staff nurse, has to be involved in, are we going to bring this person on? And everybody's feelings are respected, and their thoughts are respected about that. And, and we only have ASN nurses here. We don't have a lot of BSN nurses here yet, but 
the response to that is to add in the tuition reimbursement and um, for the higher levels of education and supporting that as a hospital as part of the benefit package. And it, so I imagine this has created somewhat of a culture, Rachel. Can you can you speak to that? You know, you mentioned you know there were higher employee turnover rates, and it's it's really tough. Nursing's a tough career. Uh, we we see that a lot in assisted living, long, uh, skilled nursing um, organizations. You know, really struggle with employee turnover, uh, and I, I imagine probably due to the warm body syndrome, as you put it, among other things. So, 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 can you talk a little bit about that culture and and driving down that rate of turnover? Well, the number one thing that I think is important, and you read this in all the nursing leadership um, literature, is that nurses need a seat at the table, and that's every table. So I'm very fortunate here that the CEO and the CFO that I work with. I am, have equal vote, and we have discussions, and we, and we look at how things are to be implemented. And they recognize that culture is very important. They recognize that the people component of an organization makes or breaks it. And so they've been very, very excited to hear about the different ideas that I've brought in. And it's evidence-based practice in leadership. Nothing new that I've invented, and they've supported those ideas. So that's the first key. Everybody has to agree that what your goals are. Um, the second thing I really found that what made a difference is, is our education department. We had a non, non-functional education department. I've hired a master's prepared educational director, nurse, and we revamped that whole thing. So we started from the beginning to have a good process of this is what the expectations is. And for the staff that were here, we set the process up of these are what the evaluations are, these are your skills. Everything is very standard. It's not military, mind you, but it's standardized. So the expectations are set. So the nursing staff doesn't feel like they know what they're accountable for, their patients and their practice, and it decreases that variation in practice. So people like that. They like to know what the expectations are. And the third thing is we have a lot of fun around here. <laughs> what's called a culture it's called culture being good at and so it's very spontaneous we have we give out like M&M's we take a picture we happen to have an intranet portal here at our hospital where you can add things to it that people can look at so people just are trying to get on the portal and it's their moment of fame you know and we also have our website and our Facebook profile as well which we use that so catch you being good saw somebody going out of their way to you know give somebody an extra blanket the small simple things you like when you work with anybody, when you are recognized for the things that you do more than you're recognized for the things that you don't do, that's the way your behavior is going to shift. So I really feel like that's made a big difference. <laughs> I love that. Catch it being good. You know, it, it, are, there, um, are there any big uh, initiatives in the Catch It Being Good uh, program that we should know about? Any, any, any uh, inventive or uh, fun things coming up, Rachel? morphed into, the next thing we've morphed into is what we call safety champions and safety coaches, because people like the program, the spontaneity of the program so much. Now, instead of I'm the one catching people being good, which is how it started out, we have staff that have been nominated to be the safety champion, and they have safety coaches from each area. It's purely voluntary, and they're out there catching people being good. It's on from one person's vision to everybody's vision, and we've gone from things like um, realizing that um, we don't have certain charges set up and we're not capturing things that we need to capture for, which has to do with supply management, to the current um, 
thing that we're using to start an IV or, or whatever the supply is, is, is just is not good. And the staff say, let's get rid of this, you know. So we're getting a lot of staff involvement and things. I really think that's a big deal. Uh, staff need a voice. And uh, Rachel, just going back to just real quick, you, you touched on those principles of evidence-based leadership. What are those axioms? What, what, is there a list? Uh, maybe you can give us an idea of just a few of those in like kind of bullet points. Oh, sure. Well, it, it, there is a standardized list of competencies that the AONE, uh, Organization Nurse Executive, has for leader competencies, and it touches many different areas. It really does talk about um, your, your people, your communication, your accountability, just different things, how you're able to handle situations. There's actually a certification to be able in management as well, um, which I have that um, to help test you, you know, and show that make sure you understand what the principles are. But I think a more simpler thing that people can look at if they're not in, involved with that organization because that's a choice is that in, um, everybody knows about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, that's basically a research foundation for nursing. Mm -hmm. And they made a recommendation in 2011 to the Institute of Medicine, which is pretty familiar to most nurses, and talks about four key messages for leadership. You know, that we should practice to the full extent of our education, achieve higher levels of education and training, um, be full partners with physicians and other health professionals, um, for our, our patients and redesigning health care and making sure we have effective workforce planning and policy. So those are the things that I go by. That sounds like a lot of words. I break it down into three things. I basically say, are we having good teamwork? Do we have the right technology? And are we getting value of change for the quality of care for our patients? And do our staff understand that? And that, everything that I implement, it has to pass those three tests. And that way I know that I'm really meeting the principles of evidence-based practice and what needs to be done by independent um, report. You know, that's, how I, that's how I like to do things. Today's installment of the IAS podcast series is brought to you by Omnicare. Say hello to dedicated account management from Omnicare. Their account managers are here to help your community increase efficiencies through the use of e-refills with a unique system that saves time and money while reducing human error. Uh, they'll cover the details so you can focus on quality care. Get to know them at Omnicare.com. Again, that is Omnicare.com. And now back to the final portion of our interview with Rachel Provo. And, you know... You mentioned in preparation for this interview that you have kind of a unique project management uh, system within your own team, too. Can you describe that system to us real quick? Well, it's just falling back on something that's been used for a long time, PDSA. If you've ever heard that plan do, um, oh, I blank, wait a minute, plan do, uh, study and act, plan do, study and act. Because you can look at project management software, you can spend $5,000 for some fancy thing that you type all this stuff. <laughs> but the way it comes down to it, you got to make a plan. you got to do the plan. you got to study if it was a good plan and then, you know, act upon it. It's a circle. But that's what we really try to do from the simplest things. A great example is we realized that data was being input for our newborns in a system that was putting in the wrong weight. The wrong weight was automatically being pulled over to the pharmacy, and that's what they were calculating drugs for our NICU babies. Nobody was catching this, and then the nurse were getting these crazy doses of medication, and they were checking it, and they were going, they said, 
what can we do? If pharmacy's making a mistake. Well, pharmacy wasn't really making a mistake, but we didn't know until we went back and we said, well, how are we going to plan to stop this? How are we going to do it? Because it involved IT. How are we going to study to make sure that it's doing? A, we're doing a good job? And what's the final action? Which for us was neonates were getting the right calculation of drugs and the nurses, well, if they were doing, giving safe practice. That's a great example of just taking the smallest little things. And that wasn't myself sitting down there or the director of this or that. This was staff. They sat down and said, this is what's going on. This is what we think we should do. So who were your key stakeholders on the staff? And how often were you, was everyone meeting? Uh, and, and who with? It sounds like you pulled IT in, uh, some members of the executive leadership team. What did that look like? Well, it was the it, it's, you have to have what you call the your heavy hitters, your players. Who's, who has a stake in this? Who has a stake in this? Well, the nurses did because they were advocate for the patients. Pharmacy did because they were advocate for the patients and the medications they were dispensing. We realized, like you said, it was an IT problem, so we needed to work with that. We had the registration department who was entering the data. And then, obviously, we had, you know, quality and risk management involved in that because, you know, the, the ramifications of this were, you know, what they were. So you just pull in the group. You don't have this big giant group. It's just you know it's following um, project management and lean and green belt techniques and things like that. But you don't have to have all those certifications. You just have to know what you want and you have to tell everybody we're gonna get this done and we're gonna get it done in a short period of time. Not let's re talk of meet about it ten times and then decide to do something. People are exhausted by that and nothing gets done. It, it, are there any? Are there any projects that have influenced long-term care and some of those transitions of care we talked about for your senior, your, your, your more senior patients? Well, I can tell you about a project that we were looking at. Um, length of stay based on population. Um, we all know that we want our patients, when they have to come to an acute care setting, for that to be resolved as quickly as possible. The longer you're in a hospital, the more risk there is. So we looked and we realized that for our case mix index, we were really had a longer length of stay than was normal in our area in Florida. So one of the things we realized was is that people were chasing what I like to call low-hanging fruit. Did you remember to get the PT consult? Did you do the oxygen walk? Did you have their has their diet in advance? And those were the things that were holding the patients up to an extra day before they could go home. Low-hanging fruit. Didn't require a physician to sit down and do all of this. They were things that were services that were offered here at the hospital. So I started, I talked to their case management, director of case management, and all the different clinical departments, and we had what we call a flash meeting. Now, I know that they usually have a 72-hour meeting for new um, residents in long-term care and probably a weekly MDS meeting or care meeting. We have one every day. So for 30 minutes, we talk about all the patients in the hospital have a length of stay, and it's hitting day four. Okay. Usually by day four with most patients, you know which way you're going to go, if it's going to be longer or if it's going to be softer. Right. We talk about those patients, and everybody is at the table. And so if you have somebody that comes in that's a rule-out stroke, well, they have to have a PT, OT consult to decide what level of care they need when they leave. You know, what if they need oxygen? Are their medications right? Do they need IV antibiotics? All the things that um, the skilled nursing facilities and long-term care facilities would probably want to know, and that's part of our information we have to gather and be able to send back to them. So we're telling them what's going on with the patient while they're still in the hospital. That has reduced our length of stay by 0 .9, 0 .9 of a day, so almost um, 
20 out of 24 hours. That's that's phenomenal, Rachel. And it, it, you s- every day, five days a week. Yeah, well, you seem to be a big proponent of the the quick hitting meeting, the thirty minute meeting that's highly structured. Where's this patient at? What are vitals looking like? Where where's the medication regimen? How are we changing the care plan? And and ultimately, how are we transitioning these seniors as quick as possible, either either to rehab or back uh, to their original residency? You know, it, so uh, those quick hitting meetings. Can you just give us a quick rundown? How do you structure those? Um, it's usually our case manager is the leader, and they and it's different case managers, so they all have a turn at this. And then there's certain expectation of all these different disciplines that we discuss. You know, name a patient, why they're here, how many days they're here, what position, and that sort of kind of gives them an idea of which way it's going to go. And um, current update without a lot of details on it. You know, it's just a, a very quick update and. When you start dealing with the patients that you're talking about the same day every day, everybody gets to know them a little bit more, you know? And they, and they add little things, you know, we got this plan and we're going to do this and we're going to do this instead of the how come this hasn't been done. People are pre-planning. They're pre-planning. So we're making them, we know the person's in there and they have a certain um, infection. It's going to require uh, IV antibiotics for 10 days. Well, if they have four veins, we're not going to do 25 times. Let's go ahead and do what we have to do to give them the right kind of venous access early on. Let's make sure we get rid of that and the bladder catheter and things before they leave. We don't want to send that to a, a facility and have them to deal with that. So that's what we really found that we do. It's, it's just evolved over time. I could probably write out a checklist of everything you should talk about, but it's, it has to be individualized for each patient. Um, you know, oxygen levels may not matter on one patient, but walking does. Eating may not matter on one patient, but their potassium level does. So it's terrible. And, and Rachel, you seem to have drawn a lot of inspiration from Scrum and Lean. Those are the two project management styles that really come to mind with this type of meeting. Is that what you had kind of in mind? <laughs> I, I believe I did. And, and uh, we've, really, we've really worked the first initial meetings for this um, that I'm talking about um, were an hour, 45 minutes, because we couldn't figure it out, and we've gotten more efficient. Sometimes it's 15, 20 minutes. We talk about what we need to talk about. We, everybody values everybody's time. I love that. It, it, finally, Rachel, I want to end on this note, quality. We're all after quality, right? That's, that's the demand. Of, of, the, of the mandates in the Affordable Care Act. That's the demand of modern health care is to do more with less and to provide higher quality care. Uh, quality is a massive issue across acute care and long-term care. And long-term care, QAPI, is at, at the heart of many efforts and, and nursing staffs across the country, our constituents. So, so what can long, long-term care nursing leadership take away from acute care uh, uh, in terms of best practices on quality improvement? You know, Quapi didn't come around to acute care until 2003, and then it wasn't really pushed until probably maybe 2010. I mean, it, it was statistics were gathered, you know, risk management benefits were looked at, but it wasn't Quapi. You know, not only do you look at quality assurance, but you do performance improvement, the P and the I on that. And a lot of people were very resistant to it because it meant, oh, I've got to do one more thing. My job is to get these patients in and out of the hospital. Um, but that is when you really look at something that we like to use, which is called becoming a high-reliability organization, or HRO.
code. So that is the belief that you subscribe to a template. You look at standardized things and you report them across time. Obviously, if there are things that are not doing really well, there's never events, right? You never want to have anybody have a serious safety event, a broken arm from a fall, you know, or a retained piece of um, 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 sponge in a, in a surgery, things like that. Right. Those are immediately dealt with, but other things that we trend over time, we look at the quality part of it. So how, what's this level of care? How many falls do we have? Which units have falls? Uh, the bladder infections? Um, uh, central line infections. And then we look at what our performance improvement is. And we don't wait till something bad happens to do something about it. We're always trying to be ahead of it, which includes education. Um, uh, really found here when the education that was going on, um, there had been none. There had been no money to put into the organization. The organization actually changed owners probably about three years ago. And so people didn't know what quality was. They didn't know what a quality or a class firms <laughs> were. Well, how do you expect nursing staff to know any do anything about it? They don't know what it is. So we just started at the very basics. Our nursing assistants know what those words. They know what they mean. They know what they need to do. But we had to put the education and the skill into it. So that was our performance improvement. Write a piece of paper, but it means nothing unless you can demonstrate that you're able to do it. I think that's the big takeaway from what we are doing in our fast-paced environment in acute care. Hey, Rachel, do you have any parting thoughts, any, any big axioms or principles or words of wisdom, pearls of wisdom you relied on over the course of your career uh, to offer to the long-term care uh, uh, and post-acute care leadership? Well, I can tell you there's a book I probably read six or seven years ago um, by Quint Studer. I don't know if you're familiar who Quint Studer is. Uh, a lot of work in um, leadership development and mm -hmm. quality assurance in hospitals in Pensacola, Florida. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he put out a book that's called The Nurse Leader Handbook. And it's like, how to be a nurse leader 101. And uh, a charge nurse can read it. A nursing supervisor can read it, a manager can read it, a director can read it, chief nursing officer can read it, and they all get value from it. It is based on certain principles. There is also something out there that I have assigned and that all my charge nurses and nursing supervisors do is put out by the AACN, which is the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. Yep. Critical Care Nurse by background, so that's one of my other associations that I've kept up with. It's called Frontline Leader Modules. And so basically that helps the staff and the charge nurses who really, you know, do run the unit. They do. They know exactly what's going on. Right. It helps them to understand these quality principles, these communication principles. You know, what does it mean when they talk about staffing and how does that figure into the big picture? How do you retain people? And they get the training at the level that they're currently at, and you can expand on those things. So you have to use literature. You have to adopt a philosophy. You have to keep up with things to be able to really overhead. And everybody says, I have no time. That's true. I don't have any time either, but I've decided this is value to me personally, as professionally as a nurse, that I cannot be good at my job unless I keep up with things. How I do it. Well, we loved hearing about how you do it um, and how you lead your team. Uh, 
this is Rachel Provo, uh, Chief Nursing Officer with Bayfront Health Spring Hill. Rachel, thanks for coming on and sharing your views. We really enjoyed having you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.